morning, church. How are you? Good. Hey, uh, this is crazy, but could you guys, if, you, if there's seats open next to you, could you scoot in? There's still some people in the back, uh, kind of standing room only, so if you all could just, if it's convenient, scoot over a little bit, give that end seat. Uh, some of you skinny chicks, go two to one seat, that'd be good. Uh, here we go. All right. Uh, if we hadn't met, I'm, I'm Pastor Joby. I'm the lead pastor here at the Church of 1122. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I'm not sure which one we're supposed to do right now. We're in that kind of weird transition, right? Um, how many of you have taken your Christmas lights down? How many? All right, good. Eleven. That's good. We are. We're one of those. Gretchen puts ours up the day after Labor Day, somewhere around in there. She starts singing Jingle Bells. And then uh, the la- we're not even quite finished unwrapping the last present, and we're taking stuff down. Okay, so that's kind of where we are. Um, this, is a, this is a special Sunday for me. It's so glad to see so many people. Usually this is like one of the lowest attended uh, weekends, right? And so uh, good to see all y'all. And the reason is because um, I'm, I might be the only lead pastor in the country preaching right now. Um, most senior pastors take this week off and they let the youth pastor preach. And so I got to do that for years and years and years when I was a youth pastor. And, and I would have people say things to me uh, early on. I love when the youth pastor preaches. I don't get the point. I don't get the jokes. I don't get the haircut. But man, we get out in 23 minutes. So that's great. Um, so that is not how we're rolling today. Uh, but we are in this transition between, you know, between Christmas and New Year's. And um, I, I hope you do get your lights down. When I was growing up, that meant this was the week that we took the Christmas tree and put it in the closet and then just shut the door. Uh, we didn't take those ornaments off or anything. We just, as is, we just put it in the closet. And this is the week that my family from Dillon, South Carolina, they are unplugging their lights, um, not taking them down. Why in the world would you do that, right? Just leave them there just in case. You don't know. The spirit might move. You might need to plug them in in July and rock the big, the big colorful lights on the chain link fence. You don't, you don't know. So that, that's how my people are and... and so I'm glad that you're here. It's also an interesting time of year because we just celebrated the birth of Jesus, the coming of the Messiah, and we all know, we've been to the Christmas pageant, it didn't go as planned, right? I mean, it was, it was kind of chaos, at least, at least it looked like chaos from our perspective, and we celebrate that like crazy. And then, uh, not even a week and, until, until we get to New Year's, and what do we try to do? We try to take control of this next year. Isn't that what we're all thinking about? Man, this next year, 2013, it's going to be different, all right? 2012 was whatever, all right? Whatever. Uh, uh, but this 2013, I own this. This is going to be my year. I'm going to get skinny. I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to break up or maybe get a date or whatever it is, all right? I, I'm going to take control of this next year. And, um, you know, you'll, you're going to do great for about 11 days. I'll see you in the gym and say, hey. And then two weeks later, here we are again. It's just going to be back kind of back to normal. And so I want to talk about a little bit this morning of how, um, how though this world may seem out of control, God is never out of control, and you can never control Him. That God rules this world with His feet up. Uh, he is not worried. He is not stressed. That He is in control. And even though it looks like a mess from our perspective, that God is sovereign even over the mess. If you've got your Bible, it's going to be in Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, for the last few weeks, we've been following this guy named Stephen. Uh, Stephen was a, like one of the first deacons in the church, kind of the head waiter. He, he just took on that task, got assigned by the church to take food to the Grecian widows that, that weren't getting fed. And then uh, from there, God used that simple act of service to enact his supernatural plan of salvation, and people were getting saved. And then Stephen starts preaching and teaching the gospel and doing signs and wonders. And so now he gets arrested, and he gets charged with blasphemy, and particularly in two arenas. One, he gets charged that he's saying that, uh, that the temple is going to be torn down. And really, he was quoting Jesus. And what he was saying is, um, the temple is no longer just that building that you built for God, for him to live in. But the temple now is you and me, as we learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you and I are the temple of God. If you follow Jesus, that means you're the temple. Maybe you've heard that your body is a temple. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't have anything to do with the workout plan or abs or any of that. It just means that the Holy Spirit now resides in you. And so the religious leaders thought that was blasphemous. And also that the law cannot save you. And so um, the religious leaders were getting very frustrated with that because they, they made a big deal about the law. And, and religious people are really into traditions and rules over and above transformation and relationship. And so, you know, when those two things butt heads, it gets kind of ugly. And that's where we pick up uh, the story of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. So he has been accused of blasphemy, again, against the temple and against the law. And now, for this entire chapter, he is going to give his rebuttal. He's going to give um, uh, his reasons why he is preaching and teaching the gospel. 
And essentially what he's going to do is he's going to walk through the entire Old Testament, all right? He's going to start in the book of Genesis, and he's going to go all the way through the minor prophets. He's going to go through the entire Old Testament. And as we walk through that, if you're not careful, you can lose yourself in the details of the stories that he's sharing. But essentially, big picture, I want you to just kind of step back and get a big picture here, that what he's trying to share with the religious leaders that that are trying him that day is that God, he's always worked in the mess, that we've never been able to control God, that God never plays along to our script, but God, he just does it the way he wants to do it, that his ways are not our ways. And all the way back, we're going to start at Abraham and go through the minor prophets, that God has decided to do things in this world however he wants to do them. And though it may look like a mess and out of control from our perspective, if we could just see the way God sees, then you would understand and I would understand that God has never been out of control. That's kind of the overarching message and his defense to why he's preaching the gospel. So we'll pick it up in 7.1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And again, that's the blasphemous uh, accusations they made. Verse 2. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Now, in his defense, Stephen starts out kind of soft. He kind of lets them know, hey, guys, calm down. Put down the rocks. Listen, we're, we're brothers and fathers, all right? We're all on the same team here, right? I am on the Hug of Hebrew plan too, okay? We're all a part of this Jewish community together, so y'all, you guys can kind of relax a little bit. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now, here's his first example. He's going to say, if you take it back to the very first patriarch, Father Abraham, it started kind of messy with him. And here's how it started with him, that God called him out from the land that he lived and said, go into the land that I will show you. That, that's why part of, the, part of the reason that Abraham is called the father of faith, because Abraham packs up his family and moves away, and he doesn't even know where he's going yet, okay? You see how that's not a plan, but God is sovereign over that mess? Now, you know who really had faith in that whole endeavor was Abraham's wife. Imagine that, wives, okay? I can imagine the, 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 the submission that would just well up in you if your husband came to you and said, all right, baby, pack it up, sell the house, we are moving. Where are we going? I don't know. But on the way, I'm going to figure it out. I can imagine you going, oh, thank you, Lord, that you would send him to lead our home, praise God. <laughs> That's a different sermon, but uh, she does. She packs it up, and they go And it starts out as a mess. Verse 4, And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans, and he lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. The mess gets messier. So Abraham's dad dies, and then he packs it all up, and he moves to the land that God promised him, but there was a problem. There were already some other people living in that land, and he didn't possess the land yet. And then God said, well, don't worry about it. I'm going to give it to your offspring, to which Abraham goes, "Um, there's a problem, God. I don't have an offspring. All right, and he was 80 years old at that point. So you kind of think game's over. And then an angel shows up and says, hey, no, you're going to have a kid. It's going to be awesome. It's a very loose translation. That's kind of how it goes. And so so his wife laughs. Ah, yeah, right. I know that old man. Okay, that's where she's going. And then 20 years later, God gives him a kid. So um, if you were to interview Abraham when he's 81 and say, so Abraham, where's God? What's going on in God's great plan for the redemption of all mankind? Abraham would go, I don't know, dude. I don't know. He said move and I moved and here we are, but there's some other people that live in our house and there's some other people that live in our land and I'm supposed to be the father of many nations and I don't even have one yet, okay? And I'm getting kind of old. I'm 81. If you were to interview him at that point, he would probably say, it looks like God has lost control. And remember, Stephen's answering this question uh, uh, about, about blasphemy. Now, if you pick up verse 6, and then God spoke to this effect, that his offspring, that's Isaac, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. We'll get that out in a minute. Verse 7, this is God talking, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. All right, if you thought it was messy before, how about now? Abraham, he's, a, he's a grown man. And God says, okay, Abraham, are you all in? Yes, God, I'm all in. Move. All right, I move. Pack up your stuff. Packed up. 
Move to the land that I will show you. Here we are, God. All I have is yours. All right. There's one more thing I need. Surgery. What? Now, God, help me understand. How in the world is this supposed to exemplify to all the people of the nations that I'm yours? All right. Um, can't we do another plan? How about a tattoo or an earring or a headband? or I know, I know. An airbrush T-shirt that says Abraham and God forever. The whole world can see it. Imagine that conversation. The guy goes, no, we're, we're going to go, go this way. Hey, students, if you don't know what circumcision is, uh, ask your parents at lunch. That would be awesome, okay? <laughs> Enjoy that. <clears throat> Verse 8, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. Now, you only get one line here, but all the people listening to Stephen, they know, whoa, that was a mess too. So Abraham finally does have a kid, and his kid's name's Isaac. And then God tells him, take Isaac, your only begotten son, the one that you love, up on the mountain and sacrifice him. Talk about a mess. I mean, you think you got parent-child issues in your house, right? I don't think your parents ever tried to sacrifice you, but then God gives them a ram as a substitute, and then they come down, and it all works out. And then Isaac has two kids. It mentions them here. Isaac has, and it mentions one of them. Isaac has uh, Jacob and Esau. And so... Uh, the kid Jacob, his name means deceiver or deceitful one, and Esau means hairy one, all right? So when that Esau was born first, they were like, oh, hairy, and that's what they called him. So you got hairy, and you got heel grabber or deceitful one. And uh, you want to talk about some uh, a jacked up family. This is a messed up family. Jacob lies to his dad, lies to his brother, um, gets his mom on his side, and they kind of conspire against the brother to steal his birthright. And it's just, it's just lying and deceitfulness. And then when the older brother, Esau, he was kind of a jock, kind of a stud. He, you know, he's real hairy, chicks dig hair back in the day. And, then, uh, uh, and he liked to hunt a lot, and so he was his dad's favorite. And Jacob, he was kind of a mama's boy. He was good at cooking soup. That's what he was into. And so, uh, <clears throat> so, so Jacob steals his brother's birthright, and then his, his stud, jock, athlete brother wants to kill him. And so then he runs and... I mean, it is, if, if you were to step in at that moment in that family history, if you were the neighbors of, of Isaac and Jacob and Esau, and you were to go in and interview the mom and say, hey, what's wrong with your family? All right, y'all need to read some James Dobson books or something. I mean, you need to do a, a family devotion or something. Your family is, is crazy, all right? What is wrong with your family? And if she were to answer, oh, no, 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 this is part of God's plan. Yeah, God's working it all out. God is in control as the neighbor of that family, you'd be like, no, your family is out of control. Whatever one true God that you say that you serve, he is not in charge of this because this is a train wreck. Your family is a train wreck. And yet, again, you'll remember that, uh, but that Stephen is answering this question about blasphemy. And what he's saying is essentially he's going to give all these examples of um, you can't control God. God's ways are not our ways. God has a plan and a purpose and a will, and he is going to do what he is going to do, even when it looks like a mess, um, that our God is sovereign, that he rules this world with his feet up. You might be worried, but he's not worried. You might be stressed, but he's not stressed because he knows the outcome regardless of your actions. And, and so, again, he continues to just share these examples. Verse 9, now he's going to go to about Genesis 35 and take it to the end of the book of Genesis with this example of Joseph. And this isn't Christmas Joseph, this is uh, Technicolor Dreamcoat Joseph. And uh, if you laughed, you just told your age. Here we go. And the <laughs> patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. So um, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And the, his youngest son was his favorite son, right? And um, I know you're not supposed to have favorites, but it, some of you grew up with your brother or sister, and they were your parents' favorite, right? And you remember how awesome that was, especially around Christmas time. It became evident, didn't it? And, and uh, you would get, you open your Christmas present and be like, wow, I got a Rubik's Cube, but my brother got a go-kart. I don't get it. So that's kind of how it was going on here. Jo- Joseph was the favorite, and, and then he just made it known to everybody. He made this coat of many colors, and he gave it to Joseph. And so anytime his brothers would see him, they would get angry and jealous, and they would go, you know what? We thought Dad liked you the best. But when he gave you the number one son jacket and you're really number 12, that's when we knew he liked you best. So out of jealousy, what his brothers did is they're out uh, herding sheep one day and they beat him up and they throw him in a cistern and they're going to kill him. But before they kill him, they get hungry, so they stop for eat lunch. They have a corned beef sandwich. And then one of them named Reuben says, hey, listen, let's don't kill him. Some of you went to church. Uh, 
Let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. You know, in a moment of grace, let's just sell him into slavery. And then this group of Midianites or some of the idiots, some of them, they come by and so they sell Joseph into slavery. And the Bible says Joseph is sold into slavery to the house of Potiphar and God was with him. Well, then Joseph uh, works his way up to be like in charge of the entire house of Potiphar. And he was a real rich guy. And then uh, Potiphar's wife makes advances on Joseph. And so he turns her down and runs away. And then she accuses him of rape. And so they put him in prison. And then in prison, the Bible says, and God was with him. It's the primary phrase around the life of Joseph, and God was with him. To which if you're Joseph, and if you're honest, at some point you're going to go, hey, God, why don't you go be with somebody else for a little while, okay? All right, go be with Potiphar or his wife. That'd be great. Go be with my brothers. Go be with them for a little while. But every time, even though he was doing what was right according to God, no matter the circumstances, no matter the cost, that, that life just kind of happened to him, his brother's evil deeds sent him, his life spiraling down into a mess. And if you were in the jail cell next to Joseph and you were to swing by one day and say, Hey, Joseph, I hear you worship the one true God. Well, where's your God now? Why are you in prison? What did you do to deserve being in prison? He could honestly say nothing. I've lived my life with integrity and character all the way. And no matter how much right I do, there are these people in the world that, that do evil things against me, and here I am. And so you would, be, you would tend to think, I would tend to think, well, where's your God? Your God must be out of control because this doesn't go along with the script because I've been to 1122, and I've seen the testimony videos. It goes like this. My life was messed up, and then my, I met Jesus, and cash and prizes, okay? And you have been walking with the Lord because he's with you, and you're in the same prison that I'm in. And if you were to interview Joseph in that moment, it doesn't look like a plan. It looks like everything is out of control, but... Look what happens. And remember, Stephen is talking to people that are Bible experts. So they, when he starts the beginning of the story, they know where the end of the story is going. Verse 10. And God rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt, and he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for the sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. In other words, by the time you get to the end of the story, it looks like God was in charge of the whole thing. That God actually used the evil deeds of his brothers and the, and the uh, wickedness of the Pharaoh's wife and all of that, the jail sentence. He used all of that to position Joseph in a place that would save all of the nation of Israel from this famine. In fact, um, you know, people will ask, when you find yourself in a mess, when you find yourself in a tough circumstance, you'll say, is this God's will? Well, that's kind of a loaded question, isn't it? Is it God's will? Was it God's will that that Joseph would end up as in charge of all of Egypt and save Israel? Well, I mean, it was, I guess it was the plan. But I know this. I know domestic violence is not God's will. And I know human trafficking is not God's will. And I know lying under oath in court is not God's will. And yet God, only a sovereign God, could even use the sinful acts of man to accomplish his plan. Isn't that crazy? That even when the mess that you find yourself in is not your own doing, but it's somebody else has done evil against you, that God's not worried. He's still ruling the universe with his feet up. He still has the whole world in his hands, even when evil is done against us. In chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, this is a cool part. You've got you to read the Bible. Uh, he, Joseph re- reveals himself to his brothers. Imagine that little uh, family reunion, right? He, they've come to Egypt to get something to eat, and he's in charge of all of Egypt, and he looks a little bit different now. And so he kind of leans in. He goes, hey, guys, didn't y'all used to have a younger brother y'all tried to kill and sold him into slavery? And they're like, yeah, we loved him. All right, I'm back. And they think, uh-oh, dun, dun, dun. You know, it's over. And then Joseph says this in Genesis chapter 50. What you intended for evil, God used for good. So even though, even if your life looks like a mess because of what other people have done to you, Did you know it doesn't matter? Because God is still sovereign and only a sovereign God could use the evil deeds of man to accomplish the perfect will of God. Now he's going to keep going. Verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And now we're going to cover about 400 years here in a couple of verses. Verse 18. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. 
And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Now, imagine this. The next verse is going to get to Moses, and it's going to be, you know, the hero shows up. But what if you were part of the people that were there between, in the 400 years? All right. When Joseph was there, everything was good. Then there's a new pharaoh. A new administration comes in. And in just a few years, Israel is now a slave nation. And they're killing the children, especially the little boys, of the Hebrew women. And so if you're in like year 300 and, and you were to be interviewed, hey, where's God? You'd say, well, I, you know, it's out of control. I've heard these stories of Abraham and Isaac and Joseph and, and all those guys, but, but God's not doing anything for me. It looks like God is totally out of control. And yet from God's perspective, he's actually building a nation. And then when you get to verse 20, at this time, Moses, the hero, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deed. So this is kind of crazy. Because the, because the uh, Jewish children were being persecuted by the Pharaoh, uh, uh, Moses' mom makes this little basket and puts Moses as a little baby, puts him in the river and kind of sends him off. And of all the places that Moses ends up, he ends up in Pharaoh's house. Pharaoh's daughter grabs him and adopts him and then hires Moses' mom as the nanny. How cool is that? And so Moses, for 40 years, grows up in Pharaoh's house learning all of the customs of the Egyptians. Little did he know that God was in complete control and doing exactly what God wanted to do. Verse 23. And when he was 40 years old, this is Moses, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So if you were to ask Moses, the next verse says, and 40 years later, so now he's 80. If you were to go and ask Moses when he's 79 years old, hey, Moses, how's your life going? He would say, it's a wreck. It's a wreck. And it's my fault, okay? Everything was going great for a while. Well, I did get abandoned and somebody was trying to kill me. But I got adopted, which is cool. And, and I was raised with... with in the Pharaoh's house, had everything I could ever want or need, and that was cool. And then, you know what, I was 40 years old, and I got mad at a guy, and I killed him. You know, it happens. What are you going to do? And then, uh, and then I found out that, that my brothers, who I thought, I thought they'd think that was cool, but they didn't think it was cool, and they were going to turn me in, and I was, you know, life in prison or whatever was going to happen to me. And so I fled out here to the desert, and I've been a fugitive on the run for 40 years now. And if you were to ask Moses in that moment, Moses, so where's God? Where's this one true God that's supposed to be in control of the whole universe? He'd go, I don't know. It looks out of control to me. He hadn't been around. I heard he, he did things for Abraham and Isaac and those guys, but I'm just regular old Moses. What's God going to do for me? I, it looks like my life is completely out of control. And then in verse 30, now, when he was 40, when 40 years had passed, so he's 80, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And Moses trembled and he didn't dare look. And then the Lord said to him, check this out, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, I've got to say, this probably landed on Moses pretty heavy. He's probably going, Lord, this ground is holy ground? Because just review, how long had Moses been shepherding sheep in that ground? Forty years. Don't you think Moses is going, did it just become holy ground? Or is it, have, I, have I been trampling on holy ground for 40 years and I didn't notice? Right? You know what's true about some of you in this room? Well, did you ever consider that maybe you're walking past holy ground on a daily basis and don't even recognize it? That on a daily basis, you could be walking by an encounter with God, and you just didn't recognize it. That God wants to do something significant in your life right where you're standing, and you don't notice it because you're looking at all the circumstances instead of looking at Him. Do you think that 10 years ago, when some lady was buying ladies' accessories right here where I'm standing, do you think she had any idea that she better take off her shoes because she's standing on holy ground? 
that one day the gospel would be proclaimed from this spot, that one day people would bow and kneel right here and surrender their life to the Lordship of Christ, and that she would be buying, quite honestly, I don't even know exactly what ladies' accessories are, all right? Sounds a lot like excess to me, but that's just, that's a different sermon. Uh, so is, was it always holy ground, or it just become holy ground? And so he takes his shoes off because he's at holy ground, verse 34, and I have surely seen, this is God talking, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. So of all the people that God decides to use, he uses a murderer. So he's kind of in this mess of his own accord. But this guy, uh, God doesn't waste anything, but, but he was raised in Pharaoh's house, so he knows all the custom, he knows all the gods of Egypt. And so this Moses is the one he sends in, verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. You see, remember, again, Stephen is answering this question of blasphemy. And he's going, look, guys, don't you, how about the life of Moses? We went through Abraham, we went through Isaac, we went through Jacob, we went through Joseph. And can't you see that you can't box God in? You can't control God? Well, how about Moses? We'll use him as an example. Just when it looked like everything was out of control, God calls him to go in and set his people free. That God had been working this plan all all throughout the ages. And then, I don't know how familiar you are with Moses and and the the freedom of the, the people from Egypt. But, but God could have gotten all the nation of Israel out of Egypt any way he wanted, right? He could have done it very clean and succinct and just showed up and said, all right, single file, and uh, we're going to go on to ready, break. Hut, hut, and then boom, they all line up and go. But is that how God does it? No. No, he works in a mess. He sends ten different plagues in Egypt to set his people free. And, and you want to talk about a mess, you should read through Exodus and read through some of the plagues. He sends flies like, the whole place just gets swarmed with flies. That's gross, isn't it? He sends gnats. Have you ever been to South Georgia and think the gnats are bad there? You should have been in Egypt when the gnats showed up on God's command. They're everywhere. He turned, uh, he turned the river into blood. He made all the cows die. Gave everybody zits. I mean, it's all kind of stuff. But then my favorite one, my favorite one is the plague of the frogs. It's the second one. And it's crazy. So Moses comes in and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I ain't letting nobody go. And so Moses goes, all right, frogs, ribbit, boom. And they all come out of the Nile. And it fills up all of Egypt with frogs. Now, at the, at the beginning of that plague, you're standing there and here comes just frogs. You're like, what's the deal? But imagine, the Bible says the frogs were everywhere. It says the frogs were in people's bedrooms. It says the frogs were in people's food. Man, now that's a plague. A frog gets in your, in your lunch, you're going to be like, okay, all right, whatever it takes to get the frogs out of here. Now, what, God just, I don't know, God just does his best work in the messiest situations. And then there's this incredible conversation. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, you say the word, and I'll get the frogs out of here. You just say when. And you know what Pharaoh says? Tomorrow. Which, why in the world, if you've got the frog remover right there in your living room, don't you go, how about now? Can you start now? Pray to your almighty God and get the frogs out of my soup now. But no, apparently, uh, Pharaoh kind of, I don't know, he just kind of enjoyed the stink and the, and the mess. But did you know there's a lot of people sitting in here right now and the Holy Spirit leans into you and says, hey, you know this sin and guilt and condemnation that you've been toting around? Yeah, it stinks in your life too. I can handle that. You just say when. And there's so many of us that go, how about tomorrow? It's just silly. It's as silly as a nation full of frogs and saying, no, we're good with it here. And so God is using that kind of mess. Remember, Stephen is explaining to this group of people. When it looks like it's out of control, that's when God does his very best work. That it might look like it's out of control, but God's in control, and you can never control him. Now, he's going to keep going. Verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. And he received living oracles to give to us. You'll remember last week, that was the Ten Commandments. We spent all week on that, verse 39. And our fathers refused to obey him and thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Um, Part of what Stephen is defending here is the gospel. He's, he's, he's essentially saying, listen, you know how I know the law won't save you? Because it didn't even save Moses. Moses is on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments or the law from God. Meanwhile, his people are breaking the very first commandment while he's receiving the commandments. Don't worship any other God. That you can try as hard as you want to, but you can never obey the law. It's why he's preaching and teaching the gospel. And the thing that bugged these religious men about the gospel is that it didn't play to their script. They were so good at keeping the rules. They loved their traditions and they loved their rules. And they loved it more than transforming lives and a relationship with God. And so Stephen's there going, hey, listen, it won't work. You cannot box God in with your traditions and you cannot box him in with your rules. But it's about the gospel. It's about the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. And so then he quotes Amos. Um, so he's gonna uh, he's gonna take us all the way to the minor prophets to the end, essentially to the end of the Old Testament, and it's Amos five twenty five to twenty seven. He says this: Did you bring me a slain beast and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Malak and the star of your god Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into the exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke who who spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? And so now Stephen's going to take them from the minor prophets all the way to the building of the temple. He says, hey, I don't even have time to get into it, but you want to talk about a mess? How about King David? Okay, he was an adulterer that murdered his, uh, the girl he got, in, he got her pregnant and then killed her husband. All right, that's a good dude, right? Um, so God worked through him. And then Solomon, who built the temple, he had, he had a 1,000 women, all right? 300 wives, 700 concubines. Fellas, you think one wife at home was a mess? Get, get a 1,000, all right? We're talking about a mess. This guy was in panic all the time. And so God is working through those two men. And essentially what he's talking about with all this tabernacle and temple talk, he's saying, listen, when, when Moses got the children of Israel out of Egypt and they were wandering around in the desert, they, they built like this, um, this mobile worship experience. And they would just set it up, and then God would show up and inhabit the praises of his people. And they were ready to move. They would break it down and move to the next spot. But then, just like all of our forefathers have done, we always try to box God in. And literally with the temple, we built a box to put him in. It was called the Holy of Holies. And we said, okay, God, we're going to do our thing, and then you stay in the box. And we'll see you at certain religious holidays every year. And that's why he was displeased. And God was saying, really, you think a building can hold me? And that's what Stephen is talking about. And again, he's doing all this to let everybody know. So what you're saying with this Sunday school history lesson is that God's ways are not our ways. And that that we've always tried to box God in. And yet God, even though it looks like it's out of control, God is in total control. And we can't control him. And then he shifts gears. And he begins to preach at them kind of like, I I, I kind of enjoy this part. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. In other words, you have always tried to control God, and now God is moving again. He is moving for the redemption of all things through His Son, Jesus Christ. But He didn't show up the way you wanted Him to show up, and He didn't play by your religious rules, and now you're trying to persecute modern-day prophets, just like the religious people of old persecuted the other prophets. So he goes on to say, verse 52, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received this law was delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then if I could just keep going on Stephen's rant as he was going. um, Didn't we just celebrate this event where from our perspective it looks like control has been lost? I mean... uh, the coming of the Messiah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 
I mean, if you, were to, if you were to look at that script and you say, okay, so God, the way that you are going to incarnate yourself on earth as the Messiah is through um, this, this unwed teenage mom. I mean, can you imagine how that went down? Imagine Mary going to Joseph, hey, we, we really need to talk. Yeah, sure, Mary, what's going on? Uh, I'm pregnant. Joseph would go, oh, well, we're breaking up. Oh, no, 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 hold on, no, no, I'm still a virgin. Yeah, sure you are, okay? No, no, really, it's God's. Right, okay, yeah. All right, cuckoo, right, seriously. Now, I know you've heard it so much, so many times around Christmas that it, it's, it's so familiar that you, you just kind of go, yeah, of course that's how it happened. But imagine, I mean, that is a mess. And then Joseph gets his dream, and God's like, no, nah, really, it's mine. It's kind of a big deal. Hang in there. And so he does. He marries her. And then just about the time they're kind of getting comfortable with that, like maybe they're going to work through that whole issue, then, then there's a census, and they have, to, they have to get on a donkey and go all the way to Bethlehem. Is anything good from Bethlehem, right? It's like going to Palatka for Christmas. Why in the world would you go? And they got to go to Bethlehem. And Mary is very, very pregnant. Very, I mean, she's obviously pregnant because she's going to have the baby there. I mean, think about that, right? When Gretchen was pregnant, I had a hard time uh, convincing her to get in the SUV to go to Chick-fil-A, right? So you can't imagine a, a, a donkey all the way to Bethlehem. And then when they get there, what happens? There's no room in the inn. There's no room in the inn. To which, don't you want to lean into Joseph and be like, seriously, dude, you need to make some travel plans, okay? You are not ready to father God, okay? You're not going to be ready for this. Because the census didn't just pop up, man. Get on some Travelocity and figure out where you can get a, a hotel room. And so where do they have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Where is he born? In a feeding trough in the barn. To which, if you, were, uh, if you had reservations in the inn, and you were to go out to the barn the next day on the first Christmas day and go, hey, uh, first family, um, what is going on here? What is going on? Your life seems totally out of control. Totally out of control. I mean, what a mess. This is no place to have a kid. What are you doing? And I've heard that you worship the one true God. Where is your God now? And there we go. Right there. Right next to the corn feed, right? That's him. Right there. And isn't that what we celebrate? That God does some of his best work? Just in the mess. And then the best one, the best one of all, is that little baby in a manger grows up. To be the substitutionary atoning lamb of God. To die on a cross for your sins and for mine. But if, if you in the first century were standing there the day they nailed Jesus to the cross, wouldn't you be thinking what a lot of the people there are thinking? Well, I, this is crazy. You said it's your God and you're hanging on a tree? And, and you might be tempted to say what I would probably say if I was in the first century, like what some of the Roman soldiers say, if you really are God, then prove it. Get down from the cross and save yourself. And then we'll believe. Because listen, um, God can't get killed on a cross. Not like a common thief like everybody else. And so you might be tempted to say, well, where is God? If this really is the Son of God, how in the world could, this, could God allow His Son to die on a cross? God, you have lost control. God, where are you? And one of the disciples might lean over and go, there He is. He's hanging on a tree. And what looks like, what looks like um, uh, all control has been lost to you is actually God's eternal plan of redemption for all mankind. That's what you are witnessing right then. And even after Christ comes off the cross, before he's resurrected, the disciples don't get it. They think all control has been lost. That's why, do you remember what Peter did? Anybody remember? Went fishing, right? Went fishing. Praise God. All the country people ought to say amen. All right, went fishing. He just returned to his old lifestyle. And if you, would have, if you would have interviewed him between the crucifixion and the resurrection and say, okay, Peter, you're like the main disciple. What's the plan? He'd say, I don't know. I don't know what the plan is. Everything's a mess. We're afraid. They killed our leader. We thought he was going to come in and take over. Now he's dead. We don't know what to do. So we just went fishing. It looks like everything is out of control. And yet, what is God doing? God's doing what he always does. He, he's ruling the universe with his feet up. He's not stressed. He's not worried because he's still got the world in his hands. The bottom line is this, that God is the master of making miracles out of messes. From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, God has always been the master of taking whatever mess that we're in and making miracles out of it. And the beautiful part is this. The beautiful part is, I know there's a ton of messes in this room. I know it. I know it. And some of you got where you are, and it's really kind of on God. 
He's just dragging you through it. Because sometimes God does that, right? Sometimes you're walking along and you stumble and fall in the mud and you say, God, I need help. He goes, sure, I'll help you. And he just drags you right through it like that, okay? That's just how he rolls sometimes. Sometimes it's just to draw you unto him. And some of you are in messes um, because, because it just happened, right? The economy turned or, or you're just in this physical ailment because we live in this broken and chaotic world. And it just kind of happened to you. Some of you, like Joseph, are in messes because, uh, because of some choices that others made against you. And you're paying the repercussions. And some of you are there, and it's your own fault, like Moses. You, you made the decisions that ran your life into the ditch. You know what the, the beautiful part is? It doesn't matter how you got there. I think that's a part of why Stephen uses all of these particular uh, incidences. Because whether you're like Abraham and kind of God put you there, or, or whether you're like Joseph and, and some evil people put you there, or, uh, or, or whether you're like Moses and your own bad mistakes put you there, that God is still the master of making miracles out of messes. And if you don't believe me, don't look at your own life because it's not over yet. You look at the cross. You look at the cross that God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners or still in that mess, that Christ died for us. Romans eight twenty eight says it this way. It says, for uh, God works in all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, some people kind of mistranslate that into this weak little chicken soup for the soul thing where you say, well, everything happens for a reason. Well, the reason might be because you're dumb. That might be the reason. You get that? All right? You might be in debt because you didn't have money and you just kept buying stuff. That's just, you're just dumb, okay? Uh, but even if that's the case, even if your dumb decisions is the reason that this is happening, that God still works in the messes. Let me just tell you this. If you're going to be a part of this church, the church of 1122, it's why you don't have to fake it here. It's why you don't have to pretend uh, everything's okay. Because not only do we know that that's not true, because it's not, it's not true in my life either, but it's also the example of every person in the scripture that, that in your weakness, he is made strong. That's why you don't have to fake it here. And, and I would encourage you, don't fake it, because the fake you is doing just fine. Doing just fine. But if you're ready to get out of the mess, then you've got to bring the real mess and the real you to him. And so I know there's a bunch of messes here. Some of you are in a financial mess. It doesn't really matter how you got there. Some of you are in relational messes. Some people you used to be really close to. Now there is just nothing but bitterness between you. Some of you are in marital messes. Some of you are holding hands right now and faking it and smiling and you're just hoping nobody knows. And some of you are here without your spouse and you know that you're in a mess. Some of you are in, uh, this is the scariest one for me, you're in a spiritual mess. I mean, you just are. You and God are not okay. And, and that typically goes in one of two directions. Some of you are in this mess of legalism. You're still trying to earn what Christ has already purchased for you. You're trying to be so good to impress God as if, if you can be good enough, then he'll be impressed. He's not impressed. He's not impressed. Even your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And it's why deep in your soul you're exhausted. You're exhausted. Because when you live that, that spiritual legalism, it's exhausting. It's why you smile at church and yell at your kids. It's because you're exhausted. And you need to surrender that mess and just surrender it all to him. That, that you can't earn your righteousness. That Christ lived that righteous life for you and paid your debt on the cross so that you could just obtain his righteousness. And then some of you, some of you live in the mess of licentiousness. You just say, well, you know what? I got saved, and it's by grace that I've been saved, so I'm going to do whatever I want. And I figured out this little trick. If at the end of every service, you just come down to the front, and you pray this little prayer at the altar, it kind of zaps the old man upstairs' memory, and then he can't remember. And then, woo I can do whatever I want again. And if you're playing that grace card, he's not your Lord. That's just not how it works. I don't think you know him. And it's a mess. But you know what? God is the master of of making miracles out of messes. I wish I had the opportunity to introduce you to our staff. Now, there's some people on our staff that kind of uh, grew up with great families and grew up in the church and have been walking with the Lord for a long, long time, okay? But the majority of us came to Christ in a mess. The majority of us. The majority of us, it was when we were at our lowest and our weakest and our messiest that we quit trying to fix it ourselves and we just surrendered it to the Lord. And it's in that mess that he came in with the greatest miracle of all time. And that is the miracle of salvation. And he saved us. And you, 
you have that same invitation today. Can I just tell you that that's why Stephen could do what he was doing? Um, I don't know if you've, if you've read ahead, but it's not going to end well for Stephen. Next week, Stephen gets killed, okay? So that's a bummer. But even in the face of the worst mess I could think of, literally, men standing before you with stones. They're going to throw stones at him until he dies. And you know what his response is in verse 54? It says, now when they heard these things, that's the, the stoners, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, that's Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So you know why Stephen didn't look worried? Because Jesus didn't look worried. And that's what he was looking at. And I know some of you are in a mess and some of you are worried. You're saying, yeah, hey, this is a great sermon, but I don't have a job and I'm worried. But let me tell you who's not worried. God, he's not worried. He's still ruling. He's still in charge. He's still sovereign. He's even sovereign over the mess regardless how you got there. He is sovereign. He is still in control. He's got the whole world in his hands. And so, for 2013, if you want to make some New Year's resolutions, go ahead. I mean, I hope you do. I hope you lose weight and eat better and work harder and spend more time with your family and whatever, okay? But if that's where you're putting your hope, if you're putting your hope in, I'm going to get control of this mess, then we'll be right here back together in the same mess next year. So why not put your hope in the miracle maker over the messes? Why not put your hope and your faith and your trust in the one who every single time from the beginning to the end of this book, when things seemed like they were totally out of control, God was still ruling the universe with his feet up, saying, I got this. I've got this. I've got the whole world in my hand. And maybe you, maybe you would put your hope in the one true God, his name is Jesus. That in what looks like the greatest mess of all, the crucifixion of the Son of God was actually God's plan to redeem you. And again, regardless of how you got in the mess, the invitation is the same. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yeah, but you don't understand. I've done, that's okay. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means that, that instead of trying to control your mess and your life and your circumstances this year, that now and for the rest of your life, you release the grip and turn it over and surrender. Surrender. Surrender the mess, surrender your life, surrender your heart, surrender it all to the one who gave his life for you. Would you please bow your head and pray with me? Hey, if that's you, if you're ready to surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ for the very first time, would you just raise your hand right where you are? It is not a, a, a hand raised that saves you But you're just raising your hand saying, Lord, here I am. I surrender it all to you. And for those of you with your hand raised in the air, why don't you just pray a very simple prayer to God and you just admit that that your life is a wreck, that you believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, and you confess Him as Lord and ruler of your life today and forevermore. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we rejoice with the angels for those this day that have come home to you. God, I thank you so much for the story of the prodigal son where the son came home a mess, but the dad ran to him, kissed him, and wrapped his robe of righteousness around him, and that mess was covered. God, I'm reminded of the apostle Paul who was in a physical mess, who had a thorn in his flesh, a torment from Satan, and he came to you three times and said, God, please take it away. And Lord, you said no, but you also said, my grace is sufficient for you. God, I pray for the men and women, the students in this place that are in messes, that are in financial mess, relational mess, spiritual mess, whatever it is, God, and that your grace would be sufficient for us. God, would you give us the wisdom and the courage this next year to not just try to take control of our life, but actually relinquish control to the one that we call Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, we pray this in his name. Amen. Would you please stand? Now is when we respond. We respond by bringing tithes and offerings to the boxes here, to the giving kiosk back there. We respond by singing all together. Let me encourage you today. Maybe you need to respond because you are in a mess. And you would respond by just coming. um, not Not that this altar is any more holy ground than the seat that you sit in. But there's something about moving to a different place and bending your knee and just laying your mess at the altar. Saying, here you go, Lord. 
here you go. So let us respond. Thank you.